Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, the podcast for makers, by makers, where we talk about all things MYOG. Brought to you by Ripstop by the Roll. I think it's good, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that was a good take. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jameson. And I'm Avery. In this episode, we'll be talking with Kyle Baker, owner, founder, and CEO of our company here, about how we make fabric. So we're going to go over the seven-step process that we use, and most people use, to go from ideation to a final product. So you're going to hear about things like our 3.9 Venom TPU. We'll talk about how laminate and composite fabrics are made, or materials rather, um, but we'll talk about all of like the signature fabrics that you've seen from us, how we've gone from concept to, to a final product here in just a minute. Yeah, and this episode is loaded with a lot of technical terms um, and technical lingo. So if you aren't totally up to speed, go check out our blog, 10 Fabric Terms You Need to Know. Those are just basic terms like warp and weft that we will say one million times. Um, so yeah, check that out to give yourself a little insight on what those words mean that we're going to be talking about before you hear them. There's also an episode about all of the uh, 10 terms you need to know. So you can listen to that as well. Um, other thing is that we do have a blog that will go over uh, everything we talk about in this episode. Kyle did a whole email series about this, about how we make fabric a little while ago. And there were a bunch of photos in there. We want to make sure you can see those photos. So if you want to see the pictures of Kyle at the mill and the weaving machines and all the stuff like that, then check out the associated blog post there in the description. Yeah, and we have some exciting news. Um, the year is coming to an end, but that's not stopping us from releasing a few new products um, just to make 2023 even better than it was. We're going to load you down with some some new things. So we got some very exciting colored items buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride we've got lots of new colored components coming at you um which will just make your diy custom gear look even more custom and it's pretty sweet so check that out they're going to be live december 5th and go to our social media to see all the cool colors and all the cool components but it's a lot, you guys. So I'm not going to waste any more time here. Go to our website, December 5th, and check that out. Definitely. And uh, one other big release, I think we can pretty much fully talk about it because things are looking really good. We mentioned it a lot, a lot of times. Two new kits coming the middle of December. I believe those are going to be coming out the 11th. Um, this One of the kits is going to be the hardest kit we've ever done but one of the best ones that you could get because it's going to be really hard to make on your own uh think of water protection that doubles as a shelter maybe just saying uh and then we're expanding our travel items quite a bit more as well so there'll be another kit um for kind of the travel side of things um so yeah check those out they're gonna be fantastic those will be on sale i want to say they're 15 percent off for another week um create last minute Christmas gift things, things like that. Um, but yeah, those kits are going to be fantastic. All new tutorial videos, stuff like that coming out uh, for those new colors that we haven't done in, in kits before. Um, they're going to be sweet. I will say one of those kits is probably my number one most favorite backpacking <laughs> item of all times. I love it. I don't go without it. I'll wait till you see what it is. Um, but yeah, 
And lastly, we do have a little holiday closure coming up. It's Thanksgiving. So thank you to all of our listeners for listening to us and supporting us. We couldn't have done it without you this entire year, but we wanted to let you guys know if you are ordering from us, we will be closed from November 23rd and we will open back up and start shipping out orders um, on November 27th. Yeah, very thankful for you guys. Hopefully you're driving somewhere fun or listening to this while cooking. Sorry you have to listen to us while you're doing this, but I hope you enjoy. (laughs) Uh, As always, um, let us know if you like what you're hearing. Like, comment, rate, subscribe, review, um, share. I don't don't know what other adjectives there are things or actions you can take to do that, but let us know. Um, We love love to hear what you guys think about the episodes and love to see um, how they inspire you. So... As always, thank you so much for listening and let us know what we can do better. And last, last, lastly, if you have any questions about this episode, um, anything you want to ask us about, just slide into our DMs, shoot us a message on Ripstop by the Roll Instagram page. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and any questions you might have. So let's get into it. Hey, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Glad you're back. First time in the studio. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, um, first time in the studio, but a uh, long time admirer. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, you guys have, uh, not related to the episode, but uh, just in general, you have done an amazing job with Thank this you. setup. It's uh, definitely professional and um, all, all that good stuff. Not too long ago, we were reviewing... Uh, because we reached our 100,000 download mark. We were reviewing some of the first photos that I took, the very first episode that you and Carter did. Sure. And looking back to like the folding table in your presidential office and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've come a long way. Whiteboard in the background yeah. and the sun streaming in <laughs> through the big office window. So uh, although reminiscing is fun, we're here to talk about how we make fabric and uh, specifically... Um, kind of your knowledge and experience of that, Kyle. So let's jump right into it and, and warm up a little bit. In all your years here at Upside by the Roll, um, which we're looking at thir- 10 years now almost? 10 years, yeah. It's um, We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. Yeah. That's crazy. That is yeah. awesome. We should plan something for that. But uh, how many total fabrics do you think you've designed in the last 10 years? Mm, total number of fabrics? I, probably... I don't know. I mean, there are levels to it, right? So sure. what I mean by levels is that there's a difference between starting from completely from scratch. Mm-hmm. So from the yarn level. That makes sense. Um, or um, customizing a, a gray good mm-hmm. um, to have a specific finish or things like that. But anyways, maybe if we take everything together, I don't know, 50. Wow. Let's, let's say 50. Yeah. It's a good round number. Yeah. So this might be a hard question for you, Kyle, but do you have a favorite fabric that you can talk about? Oh, uh, favorite fabric. So, I mean, I think there are maybe a couple. Uh, one that comes to mind would be 3.9 ounce Venom um, mm-hmm. TPU. Yeah, that was a long time in the making and learned a lot of, of things in, in that development and working with Ultra PE yarn. And I mean, it's important to note that this was 
this was maybe like five years ago at this point. <laughs> so at that point, uh, Dyneema Composite was the only thing in the, in the game. Uh, we hadn't gotten to some of the, the newer fabrics that had come out. So we were doing, we're out in like the wild, wild west, um, figuring this stuff out uh, for ourselves, which is, is fun uh, and also challenging. But um, yeah, I, I think that that fabric was was a good one just uh, because of the, the challenge of working with uh, Ultra PE and figuring out how to laminate it, even though we didn't end up laminating it, um, and options and trade-offs between coatings and versus lamination, things like that. Hmm. Uh, I, I would say another one uh, would be one that we actually haven't we worked on recently, but we haven't actually released yet. Uh, so yeah, teaser <laughs> alert, um, which is I won't spoil everything and give the name of the fabric, but it's an ultralight quilt fabric. and I'm really proud of the the attention to detail and the uh, holistic approach that we took to the design of, of that fabric and not uh, accepting uh, something off the shelf or, um, you know, what someone else tells us is, you know, the limit of, of what you can do. Uh, a lot of times what happens is, you know, you'll ask a question and um, the response you get from someone is, oh, well, you have options X, Y, and Z. Well, why, you know, why are those the only options? Um, is it like a technical limitation or is it because you've just never uh, stepped outside of that sphere before? Um, so just digging deeper. And I feel like we did that with, with this upcoming uh, soon to uh, be detailed hmm. ultralight quilt fabric. Yeah. Mark your Sorry. calendars for uh, roughly January 23rd. Just, you know, roughly if you're keeping track. Somewhere in there. <laughs> um, so, I want to get to the steps uh, of what it's like to make a fabric to give everyone listening an idea of how we end up with like the, the 3.9 uh, Venom TPU coder kind of, you know, we, we've done a lot of them. You can think about Hyper D 300, like all the fabrics that are our signature fabrics. We've had to more or less go through this process and you'll kind of tell us how they, how they deviate some. Sure. So um, recently you sent out, um, you wrote, kind of your experience how uh, and how we make fabrics into a three-part email series. If you yep. got that, then you've probably seen these steps. If you didn't, uh, then listen now. <laughs> um, there's There will be an accompanying blog for this episode as well where we'll write out some of these things. So if you want to listen to it and then review it later on, there'll be some pictures in there, things like that. Um, but let's go through the, the seven steps at a very high level because we'll dive into each of them in a little bit. Um, but walk us through what what these steps are. All right. High level overview. Um, we'll try not to get, we'll try to uh, apply the um, appropriate level of yeah. detail at, at any given stage. I don't think that there's um, necessarily a, a lot of value in, in delving really deep into the nitty gritty on, on every single thing, but we're looking for a high level overview, broad strokes, but uh, with a, a little finer touch in, in, certain, in certain spots. So anyways, with that preamble uh, put into place, Overview. So step number one, selecting yarn and fiber, right? Like what are, what raw material are you going to use? Step number two, warping. So this is um, to draw a, an analogy to uh, sewing. Mm -hmm. It's uh, sort of like winding your, your bobbin, um, but putting a lot of threads, uh, like as many as it takes to make the entire width of the fabric onto one very large bobbin. 
Um, so that, I'm sure going to get like, we'll, we'll I'm get not sure, that. but I mean, that could get skewered by some uh, textile yeah, professor sure. or something. I'm trying to you know, make it, make yeah. it relatable. Um, but essentially warping is taking all of the yarn um, that it comprises the width of the fabric, mm -hmm. which means all the yarn running in the length of the fabric um, and spooling it onto a, a large drum um, to prepare for weaving later wow. in the process. Oh, actually, that's number three. So uh, preparation for weaving. Uh, this is post-warping where you are getting the loom set up and uh, positioning the warp beam uh, onto the loom. Um, and yeah, just all the, the different things that have to, to happen, checks and balances uh, to get ready to start to, to weave the actual textile uh, for is weaving. So that's the, the process of marrying the, the warp and the weft at a 90 degree angle. Um, so um, if you're not familiar, warp is the lengthwise uh, yarns running in the fabric. And then weft is the, uh, the yarn that runs in the, in the width. Um, weft is also referred to as fill. So essentially what happens in weaving is that you, if you've got your, your beam, your warp beam, um, that's your big bobbin, right? And uh, the loom is moving all of that warp beam um, through itself and then inserting weft uh, fill yarns um, to make an actual woven, woven textile. So that's weaving. Um, gray goods prep. Uh, gray goods, I just wanted to put this in there as a... Um, something to explain what gray goods are. So gray goods are woven uh, materials um, that are ready to be finished or uh, and or dyed, right? Um, so things that have to happen post weaving, you need to to prepare for we for finishing and, and dyeing. Um, one thing that, that comes to mind is that uh, in order to weave the, the yarn, you have to um, have a sort of a lubricant on on the yarn uh, so that you avoid breakage and so that the whole weaving process goes sure. how it's supposed to. So basically, you have to take that off, um, that coating that allows the weaving process to, to go as it should. You got to take that off before you can apply dye to it. Um, or, you know, apply a coating. Uh, sort of similar to, I mean, I like to think of it as if you're going to apply a, a decal to your car, you have to clean with yeah. alcohol uh, per the instructions, uh, sort of something like that. So that's desizing. Um, you have other steps. We won't go into all of the steps or a bunch of them, but tintering, framing. Um, one thing that might be relatable for uh, a lot of people is that if you've ever seen a a ripstop grid that is, is sort of curved, is sort of oh, curved like that, um, that is actually fixed in the tintering and, and framing process. Um, so sometimes what happens is uh, you have different tension settings and whatnot. So uh, it's it's the fabric at the end needs to be uh, straightened. Um, so that's another uh, gray goods preparation step. Uh, moving on to dyeing. Um, that's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> um, you're, you're taking the gray goods and turning them into uh, applying color, right? And then seven finishing. So this can be a lot of different things um, for the fabrics that, that we make. I'll run down a quick list. It could be a silicone coating, could be a PU coating, PU 1000, 2000, 3000, how thick you want it. Um, an FR additive, a UV additive, a tear strength additive, 
um, all antimicrobial, like, you know, um, anti-mildew, DWR, is it a PFC-free yeah. DWR or <laughs> standard one? Yeah, all, all sorts of, uh, of good stuff in the realm of, of finishing. And I think that's a pretty good high-level overview yeah. of the steps involved in, in making a fabric. Do you, so when you, like, when you're looking at designing a fabric, do you always start with the performance characteristics? Like, is, is um, i trying to think of an example, like for TPU, um, 3.9 Venom TPU, sure. did you start with, I want a, a bomb-proof pack fabric and then reverse engineer that? Or for you, what, like, what's the impetus to starting the, the, the process of designing a new fabric? Sure. Yeah. I like to start. Aside from, well, I mean, I guess it's, it depends on what you mean or how you interpret performance uh, characteristics. Uh, but what I take from uh, my meaning for performance characteristics would be, what are you trying to get mm -hmm. uh, subjectively, mm -hmm. um, you know, out, out of the fabric for your particular application? Um, so instead of starting, for me, that means uh, instead of starting from, let's say we need 10 pounds of, of tear strength, well, okay, maybe you need that, uh, <laughs> but what are you actually trying to, to do with the fabric exactly. and, and then product or um, in the case of a DIY or your project? Um, could be that you don't really need that much tear strength. Sure. Um, this is just an example, right? You don't need that much tear strength. Then you could uh, shed a little bit of tear strength and pick up some uh, benefits in other places mm -hmm. that um, would get you closer to your, your ideal ideal material. So yeah, I like to start with, instead of numbers, let's start with, hey, give me a, a rundown of your top three wants and wants and or needs. If we were having a beer, right? Like, uh, what would you, and I asked you the question, hey, you know, what, um, what are your top two uh, things that you want to get out of this fabric? Uh, or what are your pain points that you're experiencing with, uh, with another fabric, uh, whether it's something that you've used as a, in a project or something that you're using in, in your product, um, and then go from there and build the, um, build out the approach to the design, uh, from the answer or answers to those questions. So that makes sense. yeah, definitely. So for you, it looks something like asking, other customers or people this, but also looking at the market and saying, these are pain points I'm, I'm seeing come up for a lot of people over and over again. Sure. This is, these are going to be kind of the, the, the foundation of this new fabric that I want to build or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, um, try to keep a, an open, uh, mindset, mm -hmm. um, and not get horse blinders to the way things are currently. Sure. Um, always be questioning why something is the, the way that it is. Uh, why is go, going back to this one example, right? Uh, why is 10 pounds of tear strength a, a must have? Is it a must have? Um, or is there a, is there a better approach? Yeah. Is there, so I feel like with something that you, you start to learn more about, you start to have a better appreciation of what people are doing in this sphere. Um, are there fabrics out there that you are really impressed by? Like, are there companies, big companies like REI size or other um, people in our industry that you see the way that they're designing where you're like, man, I really like their intentionality and kind of with what you know about fabric making, mm -hmm. are there things that impress you? Oh yeah, certainly all the time. I mean, um, 
I think that the uh, Challenge Ultra products are are excellent. Um, you know, doing some of the things that some of the same things that we did originally, or at least the the core of the design of like the three point nine ounce Venom, um, but uh, in a laminated product. So uh, those are good. Obviously, DCF and uh, and the like, and some of the things that the people are doing. You look at it and you say, okay, well, that's uh, you know, I, I like the the design approach. I mean, other times I, I look at things that people are doing, and I think it's an example of uh, sort of the the horse blinders uh, comment. Sure. Um, not to say that when you have horse blinders on, you are necessarily going to create a bad product. Sure. Um, but that keeping an open mindset yeah. uh, allows you to arrive at the best product. Yeah. Yeah. It might not be innovative. Like it might be a solid product and one that people are used to, but it's not going to be groundbreaking or anything. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm just saying uh, in general, right? Like um, keeping a, an, an open mind um, and having a customer driven and application specific mm. um, approach to, to the design. I also think there's something to be said for, um, what I think is is a big strength of, of ours, uh, yeah. which is bridging the gap between fabric and material design and application of fabrics and materials. So knowing how the fabric and the material, well, I moved away from the mic a little bit, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 back, in, I'm back in the zone. Uh, taking how you know the fabrics and materials are going to be used and the, the intent and mm-hmm. what uh, the end user is trying to get out of them uh, and then using that in your uh, design approach for mm-hmm. for the fabrics yeah. and materials, um, I, I think that that we do we we do that very well. Yeah. Uh, all uh, humility aside, <laughs> right? I mean, it's um, it's not bragging. It's just uh, we have a a good team yeah. and a mixture of uh, technical side and also application yeah. uh, side. Nice. Well, now we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of the details of all these categories. Um, So let's start off with the first, which is selecting yarn and fiber. I mean, I think I know, speaking for myself, typically I would think about just cotton, uh, weaving cotton is the first thing that Uh crosses my mind. But what, what are the options when selecting yarn or fiber when creating a fabric? Sure. So you have organics like cotton um, and then synthetics like nylon, polyester, ultra PE or uh, UHMWPE, uh, Kevlar, HDPE and, and some others. Um, and, you know, what you what yarn you select or fiber you select depends on that, um, you know, process that you go through of uh, figuring out what's important, what are the most important things for the material that you're trying to design and ultimately what you're trying to get out of the material in the end product or or the project. So, I mean, that's a lot of words. What, what does that effectively mean, right? Okay, well, you might want uh, polyester if you want better UV resistance. Uh, you want it to uh, hold up longer and, and better out in the sun, or you might want uh, nylon if you want uh, a little bit better strength than, than polyester. Uh, if you want something that is, albeit more expensive, uh, but um, highly abrasion resistant, cut resistant, and super strong, you're looking at ultra PE. 
if you, and I would say it's also UV resistant, right? So it's not affected by UV. Uh, if you want something that is um, flame resistant and heat resistant, it's, it's a heat sensitive um, application, then you might look to something like Kevlar, but there's, with everything, there's a trade-off, right? So Kevlar is um, not, uh, not very uh, UV resistant at all. Mm -hmm. So it has to be covered and, and things like that. So yeah, it just comes down to what your fabrics, fabric needs are and what you're trying to get out of uh, the, the end product or project. Other than the performance, uh, what sort of price differences are there between those? I mean, everyone knows of UHMWPE being uh, or knowing it as being more expensive uh, because of Ultra and fabrics with Dyneema. Sure. But um, like, are nylon polyester similar prices normally? Is Kevlar up in like the UHMWPE range? How do how do the prices vary from fiber to fiber? So Kevlar and Ultra PE, mm -hmm. like you said, definitely more expensive, <laughs> yeah. uh, much more expensive than nylon or polyester. Uh, nylon is uh, generally speaking a little bit more expensive, uh, not drastically so, but a little bit more expensive than polyester. Uh, HDPE uh, is just a uh, uh, a little bit similar to uh, UHMWPE, but not quite as as expensive. Oh, yeah. So, like yeah. some middle of the road. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good breakdown. Yeah, what sort of high level limitations are there to to looking at these? Because obviously, from like a really stripped down perspective, it'd be easy for people just to say, "Oh, like UHMWPE and Kevlar, they're incredibly strong." So that's like a really easy go to. Um, with Kevlar, you mentioned the UV resistance, but what other like why would UHMWPE not always just be one of the best options without price considerations? Sure. Um, I don't know if you said heat, but I didn't. That's yeah, Ultra yeah. PE. I mean, just one mm -hmm. reason you wouldn't want to uh, use Ultra PE outside of cost differences it would be if it's a heat sensitive application, mm -hmm. right? So the melting point uh, of ultra PE is anywhere from 275 to 290, 270 to 290 um, uh, Fahrenheit. So yeah, if you're going above that, then <laughs> yeah, if you're going above that in your application, um, then it's, it's not going to work. Sure. Uh, you're, you're just going to destroy the the material or sorry, the, um, the, the fiber. fiber. Or if you're looking to, you know, use a certain combination of Ultra PE and another yarn. Um, so, for example, like doing Ultra PE and in polyester is, is difficult because polyester mm -hmm. dies at a, you have to dye it at a higher temperature oh, I see. than nylon. Um, so you can run into issues with color fastness with the polyester and um, color depth and, and things like that. It's just more difficult. So it's not to say that it can't be done, um, but that would be another reason to consider another consideration. Interesting. So that's, that brings up a good point. Um, our products team gets data sheets and they send them to me to turn them into like more customer facing with like their logo on it and stuff like that. Um, and one of the tests on there that we often test for is color fastness to light. So what that is testing um, you just brought up because I've never thought about that test. So then just like I type it out and then, so, you know, 4.5. Yeah. Uh, so that is like the, the efficacy that a color will adhere to a particular fiber? Yeah. So essentially with exposure to UV mm -hmm. or the sun mm -hmm. over time, uh, how, how well does a, how well does the color hold up relative yeah. to the, the virgin sample? 
Oh, that's cool. And that has a lot to do with the the yarn or mm -hmm. or the fiber. Um, there hmm. are things that you can do to affect the, the color fastness sure. a little bit, um, but to the first order, it's it's dominated by uh, by the yarn that you're using. So, for example, um, polyester has better uh, is known to have better color better. fastness um, than nylon six. Nylon six six has better color fastness than um, nylon six. Um, solution dyed mm -hmm. uh, yarns uh, of all type have a, a better uh, color fastness uh, because the uh, dye is put in yeah. when the yarn is made as opposed to gotcha. uh, when the, the fabric is, yeah. is finished and you're dyeing in a big, essentially like a big bathtub of, sure. <laughs> of dye. Yeah. Cool. That was interesting. I'd never, I'd have never really thought about that test particularly on the data sheet before. So that, that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it doesn't matter uh, so much. Um, but for products that are out in the sun sure. and um, they're going to get a lot of yeah, marine UV products. And, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's a good example. I think that's it for number one. I'm sure some of this stuff will come up as we go through. But uh, number two is warping. <clears throat> so step one isn't just one yarn. It's Is it two for the, is it for the warp and the weft that you're choosing? Or do you, you choose like the number one step being selecting the yarn fiber, is that for both or is that just for one or is that for the whole fabric? Uh, the selecting what yarn you want to use or the yeah. fiber. Yeah. So you can get to select both. Um, okay. A lot of times you're using the same yarn for yep. both warp and weft, but you don't necessarily have to. Okay. I mean, there are other considerations uh, that you have to keep in mind if you're not going to use the same sure. yarn. Um but yeah, I mean, I would think that well, not, I think a lot of times it it is the same uh, yarn okay. or for both the warp and the weft. But for warping, you're you're only putting together the the yarn that's going to go in the lengthwise uh, direction of of the fabric. Gotcha. So then, so that how number one and number two in terms of like selecting the yarn fiber and warping, how those would interact? That for the most part, you're going to choose design your fabric, choose the, the fiber and everything. And then it's only if there's a special consideration, will the warp maybe be like a bigger process or a bigger step in that process? Is that true? So, I mean, the bridge between number one and number two is that you would, you, you wouldn't start warping mm -hmm. without knowing yeah, what yeah. you were going to use <laughs> yeah. in the weft as well. So okay. number one, in step number one, you are determining the yarn that you're going to use in both the warp and the weft. You're, gotcha. you're figuring out, everything yeah, okay. about the construction yeah um, because once you once you have a, a warp being made i mean mm -hmm. it's it's a lot of work to to make I and mean, it takes weeks yeah, makes to make a, yeah. a warp beam that makes sense uh, it doesn't take weeps weeps <laughs> doesn't take weeks to actually uh, for the physical process of mm -hmm. like spooling i call it spooling on uh, i don't think it's whatever they call it spooling. <laughs> yeah but um again back to the the sewing analogy you can think of it as spooling to spool all the yarn up i'm going to go with it onto um on onto the warp beam doesn't actually take that long but if you think of having to have a, a spool of yarn for mm -hmm. every single yarn that comprises the width of the fabric yeah it's that's a a lot of spools <laughs> of yarn so when you go into the, to the warping room it's it's really cool um it's like a hall and i think we have some pictures mm -hmm. Of, so. of this uh, that we've used before, but uh, it's like a haul of yarn 
right? I mean, there's just so many, especially for a lower denier fabric, because as the denier goes down, you have more yeah. yarn uh, per square inch. Um, so for like a 10 denier or yeah. seven denier fabric, I mean, you've got just uh, really quick math, like thousands of, <laughs> y- of spools of yarn. So it's like this haul of yarn, they're all being pulled uh, one strand from each uh, spool down onto this big uh, warp beam. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, back to, to number one, you're going to define the entire construction mm-hmm. or the construction in its entirety before you move to the warping uh, stage, which is number two. Because once you once you get on that path, you're you're at least stuck in the warp. You can still change some things mm-hmm. with with the weft. You can like if you wanted to have uh, you say you wanted to change the fill density. Um, yeah. you could still do that. So let's use the, I think the 3.9 Venom TPU is a good example to kind of keep following because I think most people know it. So for for the selecting the yarn fiber, it was obviously 100% UHMWPE. Uh, that means for the warping, it's going to be like the fill is also going to be a woven UHMWPE. Correct. Right? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, I'm glad you used that as an example because now we can just keep following that one throughout the episode. Yeah, and one of the things that we did for a variant of of that fabric was to use black ultra pe in the warp and then white in the weft yeah and that creates a a a mixture of the two to um yield the the appearance of gray that's cool yeah that'd be sweet that's how we made gray no no dying involved um it was uh 50 50 well well, not exactly 50 50 mix but thereabouts a mixture of uh using both black and and white ultra pe yarn sweet so sweet nice so the next two kind of go together so i figured we just kind of introduce both of them and let you take it away but number three we had prep for weaving and then number four was weaving obviously so um, can you tell us a little bit about that process, what you do to prep for weaving, um, if there's any certain processes that go with that? Sure. So I think we can breeze through prep for weaving um, pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, you get done with your warping and then you're moving the warp beam to the, the loom um, and you're getting all of your uh, uh, weft uh, spooling um, set up and, and, and whatnot. Um, you are... It's it's a, a real I've seen it done before. It's a really uh, meticulous uh, process of essentially I forget what the name of it is, uh, but um, you're putting each yarn in the warp uh, through a, a little uh, framing thing. Um, so I'm sure somebody's going to comment. I think it's called like the hilt or something. Um, by the way, yeah, I um, try to keep as much knowledge in my in my head as possible. Uh, but there's so many things <laughs> when it's uh, readily yeah. available via Google. Uh, Google is, is also your friend, but I think it's called the, the hilt or something okay. like that. Um, but you can think of it as, ooh, this is a good analogy. Think of uh, having to thread um, like 3,000 needles cool. to, to get started. Um, that, that's basically one of the, the steps that's involved. So as you work across the fabric, each pick of yarn think of that as threading a needle on on your machine so somebody has to go through and and do that sounds bad yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. um so that's one thing and yeah getting all the tension settings and whatnot um correct especially if you have 
um, multiple types of yarn. I didn't say that, but you can have different types of yarn in a single warp beam. So you can have a, a mixture of nylon and polyester or polyester and ultra PE or Kevlar. Um, but when you do that, you, you have to account for the fact that the um, stretch and the strength um, is, is different between different yarns. Uh, even if you're using the same yarn um, type, but so let's say you're using polyester, uh, but you're using a, a thicker yarn for, say, the ripstop grid. Um, you have to account for the fact that there's a difference in, in strength. Yeah. Um, so you know, dialing in all the tension settings and, and whatnot. That's right, because you could do... One thing that I forgot to mention in the kind of selecting process is that there, what you just mentioned, like the denier difference, it's not going to be um, like, what is it? Or um, is it Hyper D 300 that has like 304, like 300 going one way, 400 going the other way or something like that? Like you could, it's not always the same. I hadn't thought about that up until you mentioned that. Yes. I yes. see. Okay. Yeah. You wouldn't have to worry about if it's 300 um, uniformly in, mm -hmm. in the warp and then 400 in the, the weft or the fill. Okay. Then that's okay. Okay. Uh, what I'm talking about is specifically um, if you're mixing yarn, mm -hmm. um, either different yarn types or deniers in Gosh. the in the warp, in the same then degree. you have to manage the okay. the tension settings so that everything comes out like the fabric comes out smooth. Because um, if you don't have that correct, then it can come out like looking kind of almost like uh, almost like this cottage cheese, like wavy looking <laughs> dimply thing. So. Anyways, that's another prep for weaving step. Nice. So then after all of those tasks happen, um, what goes on in the actual weaving process? Sure. So uh, weaving process is pretty, it's pretty automated. I mean, all of the work is done up front um, in, in the setup. And if all of the work has been done properly and you've, um, you know, gotten everything set up correctly, then the, the weaving machines uh, for the most part are designed to just run continuously. You can have uh, yarn uh, breakage and, and things like that that have to be uh, tended to. Sure. Um, or the uh, weft spool can, can run out of yarn and you have to change that out. Um, sometimes you'll see like, a little um, aberration in, in the weave. Um, that, that's a lot of times what, what's going on there. I gather either a, a thread broke or uh, it's where they were changing out. I see a little gap yeah. in, uh, in the weft. That's where the, the spool, the weft spool of yarn, uh, where it's getting shot through, it just ran out and it takes you know, some finite amount of time to put in a, a new spool. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the weaving process itself is pretty, pretty automated. And these things are designed to, to run 24 seven. Yeah, and you go into a weaving facility and you'll see literally just, let's say, a 100,000 square foot, 200,000 square foot facility just chock full of machine after machine after machine. Like think of our uh, printer room, but times 100. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of one thing I wanted to ask you is that these pictures that we have, they're not from like Google and they're not sent to us. They're from you going and, and watching these this, yeah, like sure. all these steps happen. What's that like? I mean, like we moved into this 40,000 square foot warehouse and we're all walking around like Borat, like a king of the castle. Like what's it like to walk into one of those places that's, I don't know, five times the size of this building? I don't know. Tell us about 
what are they called? Uh, the warehouses over there where, where this happens. Sure. It's, um, it's vast, but highly, highly organized. Um, and it has to be for, for everything to, yeah. to run as it's supposed to. Um, and speaking to the automation, I mean, you'll see an overseer that's, you might have one, I'm making this up, these numbers up, but you might have one worker for you know, 50 machines or 25 machines, something like that. And, and again, that's because they're designed to operate 24 sure. seven. And um, if everything has been set up correctly, they're designed to, to run straight through. So you don't have to have a, a person watching each and every machine. But yeah, I mean, it's really, really cool to see the, the actual process happening. Um, I mean, if I didn't have a job as a, a CEO and, and all that of Rip Stop by the Roll, I, I, I wouldn't mind working at, this is crazy to say, I, <laughs> I just how much I love this stuff. I, I wouldn't mind like working at um, a, a mill uh, for, for a period of time, yeah. just to get even more, uh, experience with, yeah. with what's going on. Um, but yeah, it was cool to go see it. Also talk to some, uh, some of the workers and, um, yeah. So it's good stuff. Yeah. That's cool. What, are, what's the, <clears throat> I mean, we talked about the, the size of the building. Like what are the, what are the machines like? I just imagine that like you walk by certain uh, like construction trucks and you're like, this thing feels like the size of the building. Like what are some, like the size of some of these machines like? So the weaving machines pretty much look like our die sub printers. Okay. They're very close. Huh. Uh, I mean, they might take up a, well, they do take up a little bit larger footprint. Sure. Uh, but the, the core of the, the weaving machine, the loom outside of, uh, the warp beam, which remembers the the big old bobbin, um, and the the take up area for the woven textile, um, they look really similar to to our, so they're our not printers. Huge, really? Not yeah, they're not not huge. Hmm. I mean, you you got and they're packed in pretty tight, pretty tightly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now some of the other equipment, like uh, say dyeing and finishing, from like a calendar, a calendaring machine, or you know, specifically coding machines. So both PU coding and and silicone coding, um, these things can can get pretty pretty okay. large. Um, specifically the the drying uh, chambers. So you coat it, but then you have to coat the material. But then it goes through this long uh, curing. I don't know what it's exactly called, tunnel, um, <laughs> where they heat it to a uh, specific uh, temperature and they're running at a specific speed and all that stuff matters. It impacts like tear strength and anyways, won't get into all the details. But Next step. <laughs> yeah, um, they can they can take up a, a large amount of space. So maybe like 60 yards and wow. length, 50 yards Jeez. in length, something like that. 40, yeah. 40 to 60. Yeah. Let's say 40 to 60. And then I imagine like our fabric warehouse of like the rolls and rolls, their storage must be immense. Like the, just the, the, the fiber beams and stuff like that. If I'm getting that term correct. I mean, the, the storage there has to be just unbelievable. A lot of warehouse space. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yep. 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 <laughs> cool. All right. Well, all right. Number five is, is gray goods. And, um, so this is a word that I heard before, but when we wrote this outline, I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that it was this because it's spelled kind of weird. So anyone listening, it's, it's G-R, yeah, G-R-E-I-G-E. So grage goods is how it would kind of read. Yeah, um, I've heard it referred to as grage goods before. Mm -hmm. 
I say gray goods. Yeah. I think it's just I, I've heard. I can, I'm kind of like assimilating all of the different pronunciations that I've heard over time. And I'm like, okay, well, gray goods is what I've heard 70% of the time. So I'm going to go yeah. with that. Yeah. I was going to say, we're also in the South. So I feel like every time we pronounce something on here, it's like a little bit off. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Sure. Yeah. Um, great good. So, <laughs> so uh, what are great goods? <laughs> Uh, that's not hating on Southern accent. That's uh, that's that's where I was born and yeah. raised. And uh, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I, I moved to Baltimore um, after graduating from NC State in in Raleigh, North Carolina. So at, at that t- point in time, the the four or five years I was there, the the Southern accent kind of got beat out of me a little bit. Um, not literally, but you know, it just you know. Sometimes you get into a, you're making a, a presentation or something, and there's like this general, right? Like sitting or multiple generals. Like I worked at a defense contractor, sitting at this table, and you're explaining something, and they can't understand you. So you start enunciating um, and things like that. Um, so that's what I mean. Yeah, some little detail, but much love for for the southern accent. Definitely keep, keep it keep it alive. Definitely. There you go. Um, yeah, so what are gray, gray goods again? I was about to say grayish goods again. <laughs> no, I've got to suck gray. in my head. <laughs> grayish may, may be okay. Um, yeah, so uh, what are the steps to, to gray goods? Um, so the steps to... Or maybe not goods. steps are the right word, but just what happens in the gray good process? Yeah, so after the textiles are woven, uh, they're in raw form, um, they need to be um, desized. So that's the removal of the lubricant that aids okay. in the, the weaving. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to take that coating off there, off of, uh, off of the, the yarn so that you can dye it and finish it. Um, they need to be you know, go through the tintering process to shrink them down to their intended size. So I mean, if you're going to make a 60-inch fabric, it might start out 65 to 70 inches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can, you can pull it down. Um, to the specified width that you need. Um, they need to be scoured, which is basically cleaning. You need to clean them. Gotcha. Um, and I already mentioned heat setting. So, yeah, just a number of different things that you need to do to the raw material after it comes off of the loom to prepare it to, uh, or in preparation for the next step. And then another thing to keep in mind about a, about gray goods is that it's sort of a step in this process, but it also becomes sort of a, a template for another thing you could do with fabrics, right? Like you could select a gray good as like a base and then tweak that from there. Is, is that true? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can take gray goods, which is the base fabric. And then from there, I mean, there's just a ton that you can do as far as functional finishes. Hmm. Um, if you want a, an FR fabric, so something that's fire retardant, um, you can add that. Uh, later, gotcha. you can do an, a UV additive that increases the UPF. You can add a tear additive that increases the the tear strength. Um, antimicrobial, anti mildew, all sorts of are yeah. all, all sorts of cool little knobs that you can turn. All right, so number six is is the dyeing process. In the email, you mentioned how this one is kind of a closed door, <laughs> a very closed door uh, system. I think. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. What What do you know about about dyeing and, and uh, yeah? What can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, so speaking to the closed door uh, comment, I, I think that just to give some uh, background for the listeners, dyeing is a, is a really important step um, because there are a lot of things that can go wrong 
mm-hmm. and you've you've got a lot of work uh, put into yeah. to the fabric to making the fabric at that point uh, so it's it's high risk um, and highly complex so the the know-how there's a lot of know-how that, that goes into sense. to dyeing um, especially things that are you're getting into something that's like a non-uniform fabric where you're like ha- you have two different types of yarn sure. and um sure. you know making sure that you don't cook one in the pursuit of dyeing another uh stuff like that but um yeah i mean in in general like dyeing um can it's you take a take the uh, gray goods run them through a uh, a large uh, vat of dye at a specific um time and temperature so how long do you keep the the fabric uh subjected to the dye and at what temperature and that depends on your how you've constructed the fabric so what yarns are in there um what are you trying to do what kind of balance are there knobs to to turn in here as well so um what balance do you want between say this is just one example tear strength and color fastness um because as you, uh, the, the enemy of tear strength is, is heat. Sure. Um, uh, so if you maybe want to get a little bit more tear strength, you can die longer at a lower temperature. So you got time and temperature and they go, go well, they go like this. So if you drop, sure. the, drop the temperature, you have to diet for, for longer. And the enemy of um, color fastness is probably time. I would imagine the less time it's in there, the yeah, less. I mean, it has to have, um, there are a lot of factors involved, sure. but it, it has to have a certain uh, critical amount of time yeah. to, for the dye to adhere to the yarn to set yeah um that's just one of the examples of of uh, of a trade-off it does in a way too simplistic way it is like funny how similar it is to um like tie-dyeing like a shirt at camp or something (laughs) like it's like time temperature or it's like a cold dyeing or like you use boiling water (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. it's like very complex way of kind of the same thing it seems like yeah except for you the fact that you could ruin ten thousand dollars or a million dollars as opposed to ten dollars yeah so yeah, higher, higher stakes sure but yeah <laughs> yeah and there's just a there's a lot of risk involved it, it's, it's really easy to mess up an entire lot of of fabric um and speaking of which we we had that happen um we won't uh, go into the the how of, of how it happened um but it um yeah, we, we had an entire lot of, of fabric uh, that got messed up um, solely because the recipe wasn't, wasn't done it wasn't done correctly. Yeah, something wasn't um, followed from the sample stage to production. Um, but you know how that actually happened could have been something as as simple as um, communication error or you know a spec didn't get followed through. But they're just speaking to Sure. Um, you know, you just have the temperature off, um, yeah. and you're on a, a razor's edge, and uh, and something can uh, something can fall off. You can fall off a cliff. Yeah. You mentioned solution dyeing earlier. Sure. What's that process like? Is it similar to dyeing, or is it totally different? So solution dyeing is when you add in dye when the yarn is being made. So uh, if you wanted to make a black fabric you would start with a solution dyed black yarn. It's also called, uh, so solution dyeing and dope dyeing is, is the same thing. So this is like pre-step one, like before you choose the fiber. Correct. Or it'd be something that you specific. do in step one. 
Gotcha. And, okay. I mean, solution dyeing or dope dyeing is another knob that you can turn. <laughs> Typically goes with to really quickly hit on some of the trade-offs. Uh, companies higher price, um, mm. a reduced flexibility, right? I mean, okay. you have to make a certain amount of yeah. yarn and then you have to weave all of that yarn, turn all that yarn into to sure. fabric. So you can't have 17 different colors in one fabric because you'd have to literally make, say, 100,000 yards worth of, of yarn for each of those 17 colors. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does make sense. That's really cool. Are there other types of dyeing process other than like the dyeing process, the first we talked about, solution dyeing? Are there, are there others? Uh, there's some different things that you can do um, in terms of speed. So you can do what's called rapid rapid dyeing. Um, and that's just a way for you to get uh, to expedite the dyeing process. But it also comes with some reduced performance. Um, gotcha. Uh, specifically on like things like tear strength, things that are heat sensitive. Sure, sure. Yep. Can all fabrics be dyed? Like are there any, uh, like earlier you mentioned polyester takes really well like what sort of limitations do you see with the uhmwpes sure. and kevlar and stuff like that yeah so you can't um I, well i'll speak to the first one that i i know and that a lot of people know uh, you can't dye ultra pe mm-hmm. um so when you see black ultra pe or yeah, yeah speaking to generic um ultra pe specifically you see uh, like purple there are a lot more options there like purple mm-hmm. green red orange yeah stuff like that <laughs> um those are um those are dope dyed so gotcha. it's it's red yeah when when you make the yarn not um not done on the gray goods so the woven you're not dying the woven fabric or you're not dying yeah. you can dye the woven fabric but the ultra pe component of it's not going to die yeah so if it's white to start with it's going to stay white if it's black to start with, they'll say black. Yeah. So to follow the analogy you've used the whole time, the 3.9 Venom TPU, yep. that was solution dyed or dope dyed black before we started weaving, and that's why it's Correct. always black. Yep. Got it. Um, also cool, kind of a little bit of a plug here. Do we, do we still have melange? I need to double check. But that's why the melange prints so interestingly, right? Because it's like none of the UHMWPE sticks or the opposite way you know what i mean like that's why it yeah, keeps yeah, like that heather look except dye. <laughs> yeah that's the thank you <laughs> yeah so you're dying just the i mean if you're looking at the white fabric you can't mm-hmm. really tell that everything's yeah, white yeah. but then once it gets printed mm-hmm. the ultra pe or the dyneema yeah. um doesn't take dye and the polyester is all that's um is the component that's being yeah. dyed yeah, yeah so you get this like heathered look it's pretty cool so i might be opening up a can of worms here and i know that you asked this you answered this uh, or talked a little bit about it in the beginning of the podcast, but I'm really curious about UV and fabric and how they interact, but mostly will all fabrics eventually fade? Hmm. Will all fabrics eventually fade? Yes. Yes, they will. Yeah. Uh, it's just the the curve that you're riding on, like the time uh, to time to fade curve. Is there any fabric Maybe in particular that we sell, I know a lot of people, um, I mean, we sell outdoor fabrics or fabrics in the outdoors. So people want to know like over time, what is your pack going to look like? Or what is your hammock or your tarp going to look like after six months or six years? What is, 
the timeline of that color fading? Is there fabric that's better than others? Sure. I mean, in general, polyester is, is known to be much better uh, at, um, at fading. Um, and then say a nylon six, uh, nylon six, six is, is better, uh, than nylon six. I'm not sure how nylon six, six and polyester compare off the top of my head. Um, I think that polyester is better. Um, and uh, then if you have solution dyed, uh, fabrics, those are going to uh, be particularly good at, um, UV resistance and color fastness. Awesome. Yeah. And I know it has to do a lot with like the environment that you're in. Is it partially shaded? Are you in the New Mexico desert? Are you in maybe Durham where there's lots of trees and shade? Um, so yeah. Interesting. That's good to know. I've always just wondered that. Yeah. And I wouldn't worry so much about things that are getting, um, intermittent exposure. Uh, it's going to take a long time. Um, to, to get significant fading on something that is, is not just sitting out in the sun, um, where you really start to, um, hone in on that being a most important thing back to that concept is if something is just sitting out in the sun for a, a large period of time, uh, let's say out on the PCT, right? Like, uh, a tent, um, or, um, yeah. I don't know, like an awning or a boat cover or something like that. Gotcha. Nice. Well, there you have it, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that um, a lot of people don't realize is that uh, UV and color fastness are, are different. Um, mm. So a, a UV additive is is not going to um, is not going to drastically affect the the color fastness. Uh, a UV additive will increase the the UPF factor. So it's like putting on a, um, a higher UPF sunscreen, sunscreen on your fabric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, it, it doesn't affect the color fastness. I, I only mentioned that because I think that that is, uh, often confused. Yeah. It's like, Oh, it's UV. It has a, a UV additive or sure. it's labeled as a UV protected fabric. Um, the color fastness is driven at the yarn level and mm. mostly sure. Um, and a UV fabric or if you a fabric that has has been uv protected mm -hmm. um it's just going to have a, a higher upf so that uv protective additive is something that it it allows less light through the fabric is that what it is it, it allows less uv uv specific um, light yeah okay. it's like sunscreen um for your fabric like sunscreen <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah and i mean um yeah it, it uh, sunscreen is a really good uh, analogy, um, but basically what's happening is your uh, is getting I'm like just at the edge of my technical knowledge uh, to where I'm like, ooh, should I use technical <laughs> terms or not? Uh, I think you're you're trapping um, like free radicals um, okay. in in the um, chemical like via the um, the chemical makeup of. I material see. yeah um and of well yeah, inclusive of the yarn okay. right so you have a, a baseline level of uv protection from the type of yarn that you're using um polyester is known to be better than say nylon six mm -hmm. um and then an additional layer of protection um from any uv additive that that you put in gotcha so it's specific to uv not not to like light in general 
Correct. Yeah, UV else. additive okay. does does not uh, drastically affect the uh, time to fade curve. Yeah. Interesting. So many nuggets of knowledge. Yeah. I try to drop them as frequently as I can. <laughs> I was just saying I was imagining Kyle as a rabbit, just like hopping around, dropping his little nuggets everywhere. This um, <laughs> little wow. knowledge nuggets. That'll be the thumbnail <laughs> for the podcast is like Kyle with like a bunny costume on, just like dropping nuggets. <laughs> we won't do that to you. God. Oh, man. Yeah, On great. that note. I'm getting a visual too. <laughs> That brings us to um, number seven, the last one in our lineup. Um, so what is included in a finishing for a fabric? I know that we have a lot of different options for different types of fabrics and their finish intended use. So can you walk us through um, the finishing techniques, maybe what some of those are and how they're how they're done? Sure. Yeah. Uh, we've mentioned a, a number of them uh, a couple of different times, but I can go through a list and talk about them a little bit more. So finishing can be everything from uh, hand feel. So what is the, how does the fabric drape? How does it feel? Is it stiff or is it soft? Um, are we going to add a, uh, are we going to do something to, to make it softer um, outside of uh, just uh, physical uh, you know, introducing like more heat and things like that. Tear strength. Do we want to increase the tear strength? Do we want to do a UV additive to increase the UPF sun protection factor? Um, do we want uh, anti-mildew properties if you have a material that's going to be in a damp environment mm -hmm. um, and you don't want uh, you know, protect it from uh, developing uh, mold and mildew? One more additive would be that's common as an FR, so making a fire retardant. Um, you move to coatings, you have... Uh, polyurethane coatings. So that's typically what you see in a pack fabric. And those can be one pass, two pass, three pass. You're basically building up a thicker and thicker layer of a polyurethane for waterproofness. Um, you can have different types of, of polyurethane coatings, some that are less expensive than others, some that are more expensive, some that are more environmentally friendly, some that um, don't degrade in the presence of moisture. Um, and aren't subjected to or won't, uh, you know, don't undergo hydrolysis and lam delaminate and all that type of stuff. Um, even though it's not laminated, it won't peel off. Um, then you got silicone coatings and a, a range of different thicknesses that you can do on a silicone coating. Um, you can do downproof coating. So it's a super thin uh, coating that is uh, meant just to prevent uh, down from, from poking out. You can also make uh, a downproof fabric. Um, by by construction and calendaring. Um, the difference between a downproof coating and making a downproof by construction fabric would be that uh, use a downproof coating. It's going to be 100% downproof. It's also going to be almost 100% non-breathable. So um, that has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, if you're making like a commercial product, then a lot of times you'll see a, a company opt for, when I say commercial product, I mean like something, say an REI where it's, it's going to be mass produced. Sure. Um, they want to make sure that they're not going to have down leakage. Um, so they use a downproof coating. It makes it 100% downproof, but it's not as breathable. Um, you got calendaring. So that's where you take the fabric and run it through hot, uh, heavy 
uh, rollers um, to seal up the weave. Uh, and you can do that for downproofing. So if you don't want natural insulation to come out or if you're trying to control the air permeability. So if it's, it's sealing up the weave, you can basically think of it as uh, reducing the, the gaps in the weave and the holes. Um, so less wind can go through it. Um, so that's calendaring. And tell you what, throw pillow companies need to learn what downproofing is. That, that annoys me so much. <laughs> There's also a cost uh, factor. That so that may yep. be playing into their decision-making process. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so many different uh, finish, like functional finishes and, and things mm -hmm. like that. That's just a, a sampling. So some people might ask about impregnating versus coating. Are all of these finishes that are done in the final process? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the coating and impregnation, there may be a, a subtle difference. If there there is, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is, um, other than maybe impregnation uh, would refer to like the, the yarn itself being coated. Um, versus the the finished textile being being coated, but that was a really long winded way to say yes. <laughs> so th those are the seven primary steps for for making a fabric, but these are all. Uh, this is more of like the woven the woven textile process. That's correct. Yeah. Obviously, a, a huge market right now is the laminate composite side, which contain woven aspects like if you think about 5.0 dcf there's a sure. woven face laminate to that but um can you tell us a little bit without going into like a whole other podcast about how laminates are made uh can you tell us a little bit how the weaving process is influenced by laminate and composites or, or how laminate and composites are are made or how, how do you want to take that <laughs> whichever sure. way you want to direction yeah i mean just a quick overview right like you need to understand what you are looking to, if you're looking to laminate then you need to understand what you're trying to do from the outset uh, way back at, at step number one mm -hmm. you know what yarn are you going to use what density that's one that we skipped over is this thread density mm, yeah. um so you know whether you want a loose weave um or a tight weave um one is not necessarily better than the other uh, universally it depends on your application what you're trying to get out of it going back to that theme but Speaking to the fabrics construction and what yarns you're choosing as it relates to, to laminates, right? Um, some yarn uh, will uh, laminate uh, better than, than others. So uh, Ultra PE is, is hard to laminate too. Um, so if you're going to use Ultra PE yarn and you know you want to laminate, then you need to essentially have your, your ducks in a row um, and know how you're going to achieve your lamination goals from the start when you're designing the fabric. Also speaking to thread density and lamination, the more it's, it's pretty simple, the more material that you have to laminate to, the easier it is to laminate. Uh, generally speaking, again, not getting into like all the different details and ways sure. that you can counteract or make up for one negative and, and sure. cross it out with a, a, a different manufacturing technique or anything like that. But yeah, um, polyester is easier to laminate to than ultra PE. Um, 
Yeah. So just in general, the theme is to take into account what you're looking to do in terms of lamination. Um, as far as also, so you got the film, things like the film that you're going to use. Um, how much weight are you looking to add or are you willing to accept as an addition mm -hmm. that comes out of the lamination process? Because that is a feedback loop to what yarn you're using. Uh, you can overcome. Um, so specifically what I'm talking about is that you can overcome some adhesion issues and uh, difficulty in laminating to yeah. some yarn by just throwing a lot of glue at it. Uh, <laughs> but then you're going to get a, a product that's really heavy. Yeah. So you need to, to know that from the beginning. If you don't have a pathway, you know you want to use like say Ultra PE yarn. Um, but you don't have uh, the technology to be able to do a to get good adhesion with a really thin coating uh, or a really thin um, layer of adhesive, then you need to consider that from from the start. I don't know how much of this you're able to talk to, so maybe we would cut this. But for an example like 5OTCF with a woven face, Avian or the people at Dyneema would weave that face, which is... Uh, 250 denier polyester i think for five something like that um, uh, i think it's 150 D. 150 yeah um and then 292 is um is 50 d gotcha so they would weave this polyester face then they would adhere it to and there's like the uhmwp layers in the middle of the dyneema fiber in there and then they adhere that to the polyester backing is that something they would like weave first they'd get that gray good and they would adhere that gray good to the dyneema fiber and to the polyester in, in that particular product, they start with, they have the face fabric, mm -hmm. which is the 50D or the 150D polyester. And then they have the complete, the completed DCF mm. film, right? Or the, the composite, sorry. Yeah. So the Dyneema composite fabric. Okay. So it's, it's not the fiber. It's the, the already oh, encapsulated fiber. Okay. And in the case of 292, yep. it's 1.43. Well, that's sandwiched in between DCF. the layers of polyester or well, the, the have, film. Well, 292 is uh, a 50D polyester mm -hmm. married with uh, 1.43 Dyneema composite. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's got those polyester film. Those are sandwiched on top of the, the, the Dyneema fiber. And then that's right. how they adhere to the, the woven face. Well, there's a layer of, of adhesive that goes in between right. the, the woven right. polyester face okay. and the 1.43 ounce DCF. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Backing. Cool. Yeah, in that case, it's polyester to polyester, so it's sure, um, pretty easy. It's an easy lamination. You're going to get um, you know good adhesion and mm -hmm. uh, and strength and and whatnot. One thing that we didn't talk about today that we really won't get into. If you want to hear more about, go check out the episode that we did with Justin about outdoor ink and how we print on stuff and what fabrics are easier to print on because we talked about dyeing and colors, but not really about how fabrics get their prints and patterns and things like that. So check out that episode. We'll link that below. I have no idea what number it is. So just, you know, look at the description. Yeah. I mean, the dyeing that we've been talking about in this episode is bulk, like vat dyeing. Um, and the dyeing that we do in, in outdoor ink is, is dye sublimation. So it's, it's taking a, a white or an off white fabric and, um, turning gaseous, uh, ink, um, or turning uh, ink into gaseous ink, and then it adheres, it bonds at a molecular level to uh, most often polyester uh, yarn, which is, um, as another nugget of knowledge, it's actually really environmentally friendly to, to do it that way. Yeah, uh, dyeing is one of the, if, if not the most 
um, environmentally unfriendly process in in this whole chain. So um, doing applying color or achieving color or a pattern or whatever it is through printing and dye sublimation is um, is actually quite environmentally friendly. That's cool. Uses a lot less water. Yeah. So we got a couple about four questions to to wrap this thing up. First is we just went pretty deep into the fabric bank, um, fabric knowledge bank here for people listening that are not going to ever weave their own fabric or not ever work for a company that needs to make a custom fabric. Why would it be helpful for them to know any of this? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I think like anything else, it helps to know what your options are. It helps to be able to look at a product um, a product being a fabric or a material and uh, look at the specs, look what it's made out of and be able to, at least uh, to a certain critical level uh, or minimal level, like understand what that fabric or material should do and how it should perform com- compared to, to other options. Yeah. Um, instead of blindly accepting uh, what someone else is telling you about it. Sure. Right? So that's a, Long-winded way of saying, like cutting through some of the the marketing BS that happens from from time to time. Um, yeah, you need to understand. I mean, it it just helps to understand uh, for yourself what a fabric should be doing, and also it it helps well, once you have that knowledge. It's it's a lot easier to make decisions um, optimally, optimally mm-hmm. um, based on what you're trying to do for either a project or a product. Said another way, it helps you to ask better questions. So mm-hmm. say if you were working with us to develop a custom fabric, um, you know, our job is to be really, really good at, at asking questions. Um, but it's even better if the, um, if the company that, that we're working for to develop a custom fabric is, is able to, to ask good questions um, yeah. as well. Speaking of marketing BS, did not plan to answer my own question a little bit, but to add to that, I think it's something that I appreciate most about working here is that we want to help people be more knowledgeable consumers, not just, you know, buy fabrics. If we say it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a pack fabric and it's going to be great, but because most of our, our, our customers and our business friends are people that, uh, they want to know more and like that hasn't always been an option. And so like kind of why we're doing this whole episode in general is because we take a lot of pride in helping people be able to dissect what's at REI, what they're going to buy. Cause if you can know what you're going to buy better then you're going to buy from cottage brands and companies that you really trust, or, you know, like even Carter, Carter buys stuff from really big companies, but it's when he loves it. i like how he can, uh, he can now kind of cut through and choose the products that he really, really loves, not just what he thinks are the best ones. Yeah. Which is cool. Definitely. Uh, I mean, the last thing I would add to that is that, this stuff's really cool. You know, <laughs> it, it, it helps you to understand that fabrics are, are not just a commodity that even though they're being produced in, in bulk, it's not an easy process. Um, especially when you get into technical materials and really drilling down on going for maximum performance, minimum weight, uh, whatever the, the case sure. may be. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I love this stuff and I try to share that with as, mm-hmm. as many people as, yeah. as possible. Anyone that will listen. <laughs> <laughs> so this next question also might be a tough one, but, and you get to do a lot of things that most people don't get to experience, but what is your favorite part about getting to do this and be involved with this process? 
Oh, favorite part? Um, yeah, I mean, I just enjoy the, the solving the riddle and, um, you know, being able to turn the, the different knobs and thinking about uh, a pathway, all the different pathways, not the pathway, but different ways to, to solve any given problem, whether it's, you know, we're, we're trying to, at any given time, we're trying to optimize for multiple variables. Um, I'd say on one example, it could be cost and durability and weight, right? Those are things that are, are moving uh, to, uh, to varying degrees in, in opposite directions. Um, but there's a, an optimal way to, um, you know, so a way to get the, the best result, relatively speaking, for, for all three. Um, so in, in that way, it's a, a little bit of a, a riddle or a puzzle to solve. So I, I enjoy that. And, um, you know, some things that other, others might find like a little bit boring, um, I mean, like technical, technical details and, and whatnot. I, I like that. I mean, I used to be an engineer, so that like scratches the technical itch. I don't know why I, I did that, but <laughs> whatever. I see myself on camera and I just think that that was a thing to do anyways. Yeah. It scratches the technical itch and yeah, I, I just, I really I enjoy the the overall process of, of figuring, uh, starting out with a problem and coming up with a solution. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Do you foresee a future where people could custom make a fabric like we're doing with the custom design tool right now? Um, custom make a, a fabric. Well, not one yard of fabric. Um, cause it would be like a thousand dollars a yard <laughs> maybe, uh, but a pathway to making a custom, making a custom, making it easier to make a custom fabric. Yes, there will be a, a way. And I'm hoping that we have a lot to, to do with it. Um, we've been working on something behind the scenes that is, is going to make it a lot easier for a, um, it does, doesn't apply as much to DIYers, but for um, on the B2B side and uh, serving vendors and companies and things like that, um, a way to democratize uh, the ability to tear down the barriers to entry um, to, to making something that's custom for you and yeah and fits your specific application and does all the things that you need it to do so uh optimizing for uh the variables that that you have um yes that's something that we are excited about and working on in the background so stay tuned for more information on on that in the coming i'll say months so what we're trying to do is make it much easier to uh for us to help mm. people um, make a custom fabric and, um, yeah, there are a number of different ways that you can, you can do that, but, uh, we're looking to, to break down the barrier to entry, yeah. um, for, for making a custom fabric, um, whether that's cost, um, or knowledge or, you know, whatever the case may be, we're trying to make it easier, um, and have, uh, make custom fabrics accessible to more companies. Cool. So this is, this question has sort of become maybe like one of our signature questions that we've asked a lot of people like Dan Durston and other designers. And um, so now I'm going to ask you and kind of flip it internally here. What fabric is missing on the market? 
what fabric is missing on the market. And then I don't think there's like a, I'm sure we could come up with a list of actual things that are, are missing. Um, so a direct answer to your question, but I think I'd, I'd prefer to go in a little bit different direction um, and say that um, the thing that's missing is not a particular fabric, but a, an approach to design, designing fabrics. I do think that in, in a number of cases, while the products that are available may be and likely are good products, um, I, I feel like the the best, uh, they're not necessarily the best. Um, and I feel like there's something to be said for application-driven and customer-driven mm. fabric and material design. So what does that really mean? Designing for the, the, end, the end user, right? And really knowing what that end user is trying to get out of, of a fabric and material yeah. for what they're doing. Um, and to go back to us uh, patting ourselves on the back a little bit earlier on in the episode, I mean, I feel like that's something that we do really, really well is bridging that gap between the application of fabrics and materials and the creation of fabrics and materials. So the technical side of design, yeah. I think that sometimes you can get uh, the market can get some inertia in, in a particular direction and um, you just keep going, right? Uh, object in motion tends to to stay in motion. And um, I was going to say, we're, we're trying to act on it, but that would have been, <laughs> that would have been stupid. <laughs> Anyways, um, all I'm saying is that uh, what's missing in the market for, for me is an open mindset um, to, well, Open my open mindset and having design come out of the community that uh, that you're trying to serve the customer community that you're trying to serve, um, because when you really really know your customer and you really really know what they're trying to do and what really matters, you can better solve. Uh, in my opinion, you you're you're a lot uh, more equipped to optimize for those three variables or however many uh, exist than um than someone else who uh may just know the the tech uh may be really good at chemistry or or whatever the case may be i like that i like the philosophical answer there and not you know whatever uh, eco windproof uhmwpe i don't know like what, what you know then, uh, then a, a specific fabric yeah i mean those exist too sure now we could make a list of, of things that are missing, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's my answer. Well, um, Kyle, you're really busy. So I really appreciate you sharing an hour and a half with us, um, and sharing about this information. It's really cool. You've been able to go check out the mills in person. And, you know, I, I like to think that I know a lot more about fabric than the average person than I talk to you about it. And it's just exciting to talk to somebody that knows so much about it, has been involved in the process so heavily. So, um, I was really excited about it today. So thank you for, thank yeah. you for sharing with this with us and the listeners. No problem. Yeah. And I'm uh, just to be clear, I'm learning more all the time. I, I don't uh, subscribe to the idea that I have like an expert. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm always um, looking at where, where we could be as opposed sure. to where we are now. It's not like a new thing that you've heard from me. <laughs> um, but same thing applies to, to fabric knowledge and whatnot. But anyways, yeah. Great to be here. Cool. Great to share some knowledge. Hopefully we get some good questions and it sparks uh, more of an interest in uh, understanding the, um, the how behind how fabrics are, how behind fabrics um, and, and all that type of stuff. Cool. All right. Let's shut this thing down. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.